Well, by now, I'm sure all of you are very familiar with the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews, right? The superiority of Jesus Christ. The overarching theme. If you, you know, walk away with one thing, what is the book of Hebrews about? The superiority of Jesus Christ. And the writer, of course, deals with Christ's superiority over the prophets in chapter 1. And he begins to deal with Christ's superiority over the angels in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, gives a warning to his readers about drifting away from the confidence that they have in faith. And then he picks up again in chapter 2 of Christ's superiority over angels and has established in those first two chapters uh, Jesus' superiority over the prophets and over angels. We come now in this third chapter to a second, or rather a third, recognized and highly favored individual in the Hebrew mind, of course, which would be none other than Moses. And yet... Uh, there is no way to really grasp the depth and intent of the writer without, um, and he understands this and is led because of that understanding by the Holy Spirit, that there's no way really to grasp that intent and to understand that intent without a brief reminder. And that's why in the third chapter, this next section, he begins with the word, right? What is the word? Therefore. Did you know that in the book of Hebrews, therefore is mentioned 28 times? So the Spirit of God leading the writer of this book to remind the reader that everything is built upon the thing that happens before it. Because of this, therefore that. Because of that, therefore this. Because of this, therefore that. And it's important for us, you know, as we go through it, you know, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, to, to remind ourselves that every word, every jot, every tittle is ordained and important and as we saw last week that he, in, in his writing, reminded his readers of all the things that Christ had done in that he shared in the same, chapter 2, verse 14, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that he released those who were in bondage all their life through fear of death, verse 15, chapter 2, and he gave a promise, as we studied, of what Jesus not only has done, but what he will do. And we saw that he will give aid to the seed of Abraham, verse 16 of chapter 2. He will remain a merciful and faithful high priest, verse 17 of chapter 2, that he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, an atonement verse 17, chapter 2, and that he is able, having been uh, through the temptation, 
in his time in the wilderness, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Therefore, let's see why it's important. And so he begins, therefore, holy brethren, verse 1, chapter 3, partakers of the heavenly calling. Stop there for just a moment. We'll get most of what we're going to walk away with this morning out of verse 1 and, and toward the end in verse 6. He calls them holy brethren. Now, what we do know is that he arrives at two very uh, important and specific targets for his reading audience. Holy brethren and partakers of the heavenly calling. So I'm going to invite you to just kind of slow down with me for a minute. We're not going to, you know, run very quickly through this first verse. As we consider his addressing of the Jew as a holy brethren, what we know for certain is that the Jewish culture Particularly, they addressed each other as brethren, always. Within the framework of Judaism, within the framework of the Hebrew culture, they were brethren. And so that word in of, of itself is not necessarily unique, but these to whom he is writing and these Hebrews to which he is writing are uniquely different in that he addresses them as what? Holy brethren. And so he's speaking to that same work of, of sanctification that takes place in, as one comes to faith in Christ, in which we read in verse 11 of chapter 2, that for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. The writer is addressing those who have come to faith in Christ and have been sanctified, are being sanctified, and one day in heaven will be completely sanctified. So they are unique to whom he's writing. Just as you and I are unique to whom he is writing. Holy brethren. I mean, we use the phrase, you know, in uh, church language, I guess. You know, it's my brother or my sister in the Lord. Uh, we have kind of a fun one. We say, that's my brother from a different mother. <laughs> you ever heard that one? And, but when we attach hagios, holy, to that. Holy brethren, holy sisters. What we're saying is that the person of Christ has uh, taken up residence in our heart and our lives and by his uh, efficient blood the Heavenly Father looks down and now does not see us as and our sin, he sees the sanctifying work of his son, Jesus Christ, over our lives. Therefore, 
making us holy in the eyes of the Father. Beautiful. I mean, it's, it's miraculous. It's nothing short of grace, right? And so he, he addresses them as holy brethren. He says to those who are partakers of what? The heavenly calling. Now, we know that the Hebrew culture, the Jew, had an earthly calling. The scriptures bear that out. Um, they were called and given a land, right? With blessing, having been brought out of the bondage of Egypt, uh, brought across the Sinai and marched into the promised land. Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey is what God had promised them. And so they were given a land. They were promised Jehovah's presence to dwell in the midst of them. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then they were also given in this calling a temple, a place to worship this God who had delivered them and had brought them out of bondage into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land in which he intended to bless them. But what we find as we read through the Old Testament, of course, is that their sin drove the presence of Jehovah away from them. Their temple was destroyed. You remember when uh, in the Old Testament, it tells us that the, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple because the people had repeatedly, repeatedly, willfully, willfully chosen to not obey God and to worship him alone. They had embraced idolatry and all manner of living and so God in his justice and in his, his sovereignty, his presence left the temple and it wasn't long before the Babylonians, the Assyrians came. The temple was destroyed. The people were carried away into captivity for 70 years. So they had an earthly calling for sure. And though... In that rebellion and in that willful choice to not uh, look at what God had said to them, uh, look at his love and his favor, if they would walk in his ways, in that uh, willful choice to disobey him and the, the cursing or the removal of blessing that took place, we see that, yes, they were given back the opportunity to rebuild the temple. And not only did we have Zerubbabel's temple, but we had Hezekiah's temple. Fast forward, even as you come to the time of Christ, though they had not been nationally forsaken, they were not nationally forgiven. And even with the rebuilding of Hezekiah's temple and the forms of worship that they sought to enjoy they were under Roman rule 
So the, the, the theocracy that God had intended for their life that then became a monarchy when they chose, we want a king like our neighbors. And so Saul was made king and, and that led to failure in their own hearts and whatnot. So here they are. Now they have this temple again, but they're not free. They're under Roman rule. And like I said, though they were not nationally forsaken, they were not nationally forgiven. But these Hebrews, to which the writer is writing, they have a different calling. It's not an earthly calling. It's a heavenly calling. They've been transferred from darkness to light, from, from an earth focus to a heavenly focus. The end of their hope was no longer now here and where they would have a physical place of worship. They were called to embrace a rejected Savior who now sat at the right hand of Almighty God. They were to be willing to be outside of the camp. In other words, excluded from the majority of what the culture and Judaism knew as being accepted before God. They were earthly rejected but heavenly received and as we look for an application in this kind of depth of text it becomes clear what about you and I are we willing to be earthly rejected in order to be heavenly received will you embrace the fact that others may not understand you? They might not welcome you. They may not embrace your, your understanding of the fact that God has called you as his child to walk in his ways, which are clearly the lines are being drawn even more clearly in the sand today. Our culture is upside down. It's an anything goes mentality. And you and I, if we hold fast to these things, will be the outcast. You will be the outsider. Brilliant thought. Red light, red light, revelation, revelation. Just a concept. I'm going to put it out there. I thought Sharon and I were talking about this the other day, and she was talking about it with somebody else, and I thought, yeah, that's it. New world order, new world religion, right? So have you ever thought about that? If you've read Revelation, you've thought about the end days and last times, and what, what will the new world order be? Okay, well, one guy kind of controlling all things in the world. What will the new world religion be? Oh, wait a minute. I always used to think, okay, somebody's going to come up with a whole new set of rules, uh, religious rules, do's and don'ts, ways to worship, who's to be worshipped, etc. But let's, let's pin that thought over here and go, no, 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 scrap that thought. What, what, if, what if the new world religion is a religion in which all religions are accepted? The new world religion is a, a religion in which all faiths and all beliefs and all ways you want to go to heaven is accepted it's just those narrow Christians that we can't get along with who say there is but one way to the Father and one way to heaven. 
Makes sense to me. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, your citizenship is in heaven where we eagerly await for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are supposed to feel out of place here. If you're comfortable, do a pulse check. If you're comfortable with the direction our country is in, if you're comfortable with the direction that the general idealism of family is in, if you're comfortable with the kind of blanket concept of religion and churches, the direction that that's in, we're to be uncomfortable in this world and even more so as we see the day approaching. That's what I get from this, is that they were earthly. He's writing to Hebrews that were to be earthly rejected, but heavenly received. And now having made his, his target audience very clear, those holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, a different calling, he now has a directive for them that he gives in the second half of the verse. Notice, he says, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. If you have a King James Version of the Bible, you'll notice that the word confession in the New King James Version is profession in the King James Version of the Bible. And here is one of those uh, areas or places where the New King James translation is actually a preferred translation. Because when you think of the difference between a confession and a profession, what goes through your mind? Many can profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. I remember... Uh, earlier years in my walk with the Lord, um, running into individuals, I was, hey, are, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a professing Christian. Not really walking the walk right now, but I'm a professing Christian. So what's the difference between a, a professing Christian and a confessing Christian? And we'll deal with the word Christian in just a moment. The difference one who is willing to come to Christ and make not just that profession, but that confession that you, my Savior, my Lord, are all that I need. I, I, I bring my entire being, my, the totality of my life to you. And his directive to these Hebrews is in that word, consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession. There's his directive, the word consider. If you're taking note this morning and you love using either a Greek lexicon or a, a Bible dictionary, what I found interesting is that the word is in what we call the aorist imperative active. Uh, that's Greek grammar for, I'll define it. 
It's a command to do something right at that moment and to continue doing it. Don't stop. A command to do something right at that moment and then continue doing it. Don't stop. And the word consider can more aptly and equally be translated fix your mind upon. You see, the problem with the Hebrew and the Hebrew believer more specifically was that as time went on and the faith of just Christ alone got challenged, there could be an inclination to go back to the old archaic structure of Judaism. The ritual, the adherence to law, the works-based approach to favor with God. And maybe none of us here are really that um, familiar with what it means to have a works-based approach to having favor with God. But if you've been in any uh, staunch uh, denominations where you must do this, you must do that, and you must do the other in order to be saved. You must do this, you must do that, and you must do the other in order to be a part of this church or a part of this denomination. I know some that say if you're not baptized in their church, you're not saved. In their physical church, if you're not baptized with them in their physical church, you're not saved. There are some that say if you don't, if you don't say the sinner's prayer a certain way, if you don't say it just a certain way, you're not saved. Fix your mind upon Jesus is what he's saying. Put your mind on, on Christ, who, and then he inserts these words that a Hebrew would have automatically lock onto the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Consider, fix your mind on the apostle. What does the word apostle mean? Remember, you guys with your Bible dictionaries, uh, the sent out one. So he's inviting the reader to put their mind on Jesus who was sent to them by whom? By the Father. John 20, 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you, he said to his disciples. So certainly he was the sent one, sent to them, sent to us from the Father. And then he, it's like the you know, triple home run, he says, and high priest of our confession. The Hebrew mind, and maybe some of us this morning don't really lock onto that, but the Hebrew mind would have immediately locked onto that because of the great background that they had as it relates to the office and the role of the high priest in light of the nation of Israel and in light of the uh, the people of God. Israel was to be the people of God in this world. And some of us, maybe, uh, 
you might find it refreshing reading. Maybe you would plow through it a little difficultly. How long has it been since you read Leviticus chapter 16? <laughs> oh, it's beautiful because in Leviticus 16, what we get is that fresh reminder of something that God instituted in his beginning dealings with the people of Israel. What was it? It was the Day of Atonement. And while they were out in the wilderness and they had the tabernacle, you recall, on one day each year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest was to go into the tabernacle and he was to go past uh, the brazen laver and the altar and he was to go past the veil which behind the veil was called the Holy of Holies. It was where the, the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And one day each year the high priest was, was to take two animals. Two, two animals were to be used as a sacrifice for the sin of the people. One of the animals was slaughtered. And the high priest would take with him on hyssop some of the blood of the sacrificial uh, animal and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar. And it would, be the, it would be a sacrifice of the sin for himself and a sacrifice for the sin of the people. The second animal was a goat. And he was to lay his hand on the head of the goat, thus transferring, so supposedly, transferring all the sin of all the people nationally onto the head of that goat. And that goat was called a scapegoat. Have you ever heard that word? That goat was called a scapegoat and he was sent out into the wilderness to never be seen again as if the sin would never be seen again. And as the high priest sent the goat away and he would take the, the blood of the sacrificed goat and the hyssop and go into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood on the altar, everyone would wait. They would wait for him to come out one day. Tradition tells us it's nowhere in Scripture, except we do know in Scripture that they had uh, the ephod, they had the tassel, the tassels had these uh, like bells on them. Tradition tells us that they would wrap a cord around the high priest's leg and there was a little jingle bell on it. And as the high priest went into the tabernacle, they let the cord out. And as he went through the veil into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood, they let the cord out of it. And they kept the cord on his leg just in case they weren't accepted that they could pull him out. Just in case. Just in case God says, nope, this sacrifice not good enough. The priest came in without being sanctified the right way. He dies and they, they yank him out with a cord. Well, of course, that's what tradition tells us, and they never ended up doing that because 
God recognized always the blood of the sacrificial animal and did uh, assume the sin on the head of the scapegoat. And one day each year, they waited. Can you imagine? Put in your mind for a moment. Okay, mom, dad. Who's a, who's a mom, dad here? The first time you had a baby, you were waiting. What's it going to be? Well, some of us know now with sonograms and all of that. But I mean, okay. So you know what gender the child's going to be. But is, is the child going to come out? Okay, you wait. Maybe you're so far past that it's not important anymore. I don't know. But if you're a young mom, you know. Young dad. Another example. This one would be for some of the older gang. Our landing on Normandy? Would we, would we defeat the axis of evil? We waited for the report to come. How, how were the losses? Did we establish a beachhead? Would we be able to move from, from the beaches of Normandy in through Europe and begin to finally defeat we waited. A more common sense of anticipation and, and anxiety moment. And I'll just use it because we can all kind of go, okay, yeah, I get that. A presidential election. The night before the returns are to come in, right? We're waiting. A couple of examples to kind of put teeth into now, something as important as important as God forgiving the sin of his people, is he going to? And the high priest would come out. And they knew that they were forgiven. And so this writer says to these different Hebrews that our holy brethren, that are partakers of a different calling, a heavenly calling. Fix your mind upon the one whom the Father sent, who has gone ahead of us and sacrificed his life and himself, that no longer should we wait to see if we are forgiven. We know by faith we are. few scriptures and we'll get to the rest of this. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Were you always with God? I ask you this morning, did you always walk with him? Were you always close to him? Did you have him kind of right in your heart and your, his presence always with you? Or did the blood of Christ bring you close? It's the blood of Christ that brings you and I close. Not your works, not my works. It's not a church orthodoxy. It's not a set of rules. It's not some man or something. It's the blood of Christ that has brought us close who were once afar off. 
Hebrews 9.14, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Man. He's writing and he's saying, so think on that. Fix your mind on that. Because Jesus, verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, faithful to his father, as Moses was faithful in all his house, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And he gives the illustration. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. You ever driven through a, a brand new subdivision of, you know, well, California, everything's a half a million dollars, so now let's call them $2 million homes, you know. Uh, 30 years ago, it was half a million dollar homes. Before that, it was $100,000 homes. Price of homes are over the top. Have you ever gone through a subdivision of, you know, multi-million dollar homes? Probably not. No need to. But when you look at a home that is... Uh, extremely well built, you just, uh, if you're like me at all, it's like you're, you're marveling at the house, but then you, wow, whoever built that did a really great job. And that's what the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here is reminding the reader that the one who built the house has more honor than the house itself. And he goes on to say, for every house, verse 4, is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And he's talking about the house of the body of Christ. He's not talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem anymore. He's not talking about a, a, a system of religion. He's saying God has built all things. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things that would be spoken afterwards, but Christ. And you can circle that in your Bible. You can underline it. You can take note. But Christ, but Jesus, as a son over his own house. And here's the words that you could just dwell on these words for days and just wrap yourself around them. What does it say? It says, whose house we are. Whose house we are. Little pocket, when I tried to find it for this morning, I didn't quite get there with it. Some of you may have it already. I know Dolores had it for quite a few years. Uh, My Heart, Christ's Home. Have you heard of that one? And it talks about the different rooms in our heart and have we given Jesus the opportunity to take up residence in every, every place, every private place, every public place. We invite him in every corridor of our hearts, whose house we are. The prophet Ezekiel promised God promised through the prophet Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 36, 27. And you will keep my judgments and do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. In John's gospel, 
Jesus said that the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you, speaking to his followers, speaking to you and I, he says, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will dwell in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Isn't it good to remind ourselves this morning that as we come into a physical building that God could care less about this physical structure? It is not where he dwells. He's not in this structure. I remember as a little boy in Oakland looking at great cathedrals and one, oh man, I don't want to go to that one because God might be in there. And if you knock on a door and these big doors and you walk through the hallway and the stained glass and everything, you go, God here? No, he's not in the structure. He wasn't here until you showed up. You came and you said, oh my goodness, he's already here. People are here. For no eye, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us and by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit whose house we are now there's a big word after that did you notice it two letters what's the word whose house we are if is that what it says whose house we are, if. Now, I was trying to find out if this word, if, is the same word, if, in Matthew 24, when the devil tempted, well, sought to tempt Christ, and he used the phrase, if you are the Son of God, cause these stones to be made bread. And that word in Matthew 24 actually can be translated if, but it also can also be translated since. So in essence, what the devil was saying in Matthew 24 is, since you are the word of the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Cast yourself down from this pinnacle. This word here is a different word. It cannot be translated since. It is translated if. And so we are his house. He dwells in us. If, the writer says to the Hebrew, who wants to lean back on a works-based approach to God, who wanted to, who was in danger of going backwards to a system of religion rather than a relationship with a resurrected, risen Christ, If we hold fast, notice, the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. In other words, don't go backwards. Don't slip back into ritual and mechanism and rules in order to believe that you're okay in the eyes of a a holy and sovereign God. Just keep your eyes fixed on God. Jesus. Simple understanding of the first six verses. And yet, 
such a deep and necessary word to the Hebrew and to us, his people, today. Hold fast your confidence and your rejoicing of hope to the end. Hold fast. Don't give up. Don't go back. Don't think backwards. Continue to think forward. He's already gone ahead of us, built his blood, given his body, so that you and I can also be partakers of that heavenly calling and join the myriad of holy brethren. To that we say, thank you, Lord. Will you join me as we pray? And I'll call the men forward to ready to take communion. Lord, we ask you this morning to just receive our thanks for the firm and clear reminder that we are to consider, fix, keep our mind upon the one that you sent upon Jesus. We are to keep our mind upon not a man as an old covenant high priest, but Jesus Christ himself who gave his body and his blood. And we are to hold firm that confidence and that rejoicing of hope all the way to the end. And so today, Lord, as we take of this cup and this bread, we are reminded of your offering and your sacrifice on our behalf that we might too be a holy people, sanctified, partakers of a heavenly calling. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The guys are going to distribute the elements. We'll worship and partake together.